Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Dublin Chakraborty. And I'm Sarah Dowdy. And if you're even remotely a soccer fan, you probably took in at least some of the 2012 UEFA European Football Championship earlier this summer. It's more commonly known to a lot of people as the Euro 2012 Championship, but it's pretty much the world's biggest soccer tournament after the World Cup. Did you watch some of it? I did watch some of it. Well, I did the whole DVR thing, which isn't the best way to watch it now with Facebook and everything. <laughs> Everybody always reveals the scores, but I did my best. But... If, like me, all you did was tune in now and again to cheer for your favorite team, you may not have heard about a little pre-tournament controversy involving Euro 2012 co-host, the Ukraine, and a new movie called The Match. So just to give you some background on the movie, it tells the legendary story of a soccer match that took place in 1942 in Nazi-occupied Kiev between a team of skilled Ukrainian players and a team of German players. And according to the classic version of events that was generally accepted for a very long time, the Ukrainian team was warned that Essentially, it would be in their best interest to lose the match. But they decided to not give in to the threats and just to play good soccer, which was a move that won them the match, but again, according to legend, lost them their lives. Some say that all 11 players were lined up and shot by German troops after the match. Hence, this became known as the death match or match of death, depending on what source you're looking at. So the movie The Match was supposed to be released in April in the Ukraine, but the Ukrainian film officials originally tried to block its release. They ended up changing their minds, though, but when the film finally came out later that month, it was met with anger and protests from a lot of Ukrainians. So we're going to be talking about a little bit more about why the film got that reaction later in the podcast. But as you might have already guessed, from the episode's title, our main goal here is going to be to talk about the death match itself and all of the myths, all of the murkiness surrounding it. And because while the legendary soccer game we just related to you is a dramatic story, it makes for a, a pretty great story to tell, honestly. Most people today accept that a story is all it really is. It, it's just a legend. At least in part. I mean, it's generally accepted that a soccer game did take place in 1942 between Ukrainians and Nazis in occupied Kiev, but the details are still up for debate. So we're going to take a look at the story and try to separate myth from fact, like we sometimes do, and also try to understand why this myth came to be in the first place. How did it come about? But before we get too much into the soccer, you'll need an idea of what was going on in World War II at the time, at least as much as it relates to the Ukraine. Yeah, so to give you some background on these events, Hitler's troops invaded the Soviet Union on June 22, 1941, in Operation Barbarossa. And less than three months after that, on September 19. 19- 1941, they made their way into the capital of the Ukraine, which was Kiev. So that invasion was followed up almost immediately by mass executions at a ravine on the city's outskirts called Babiyar. And between September 29th and September 30th, about 33,771 people were killed at that ravine, including almost all of the Jews who lived in Kiev, men, women, and children. And in the following 
following years, too, it wasn't like things ended after that. In the following years, thousands of more people were killed there as well. Yeah, ultimately, according to an article by James Reardon in the journal Soccer and Society, more Ukrainians died in the war than any other single nation, which is something that I didn't know before. It was something like 10 to 15 million people total. And that's largely because, as Reardon points out, the Nazis viewed people of Slavic descent to be untermenschen, or subhuman, like the Jews. According to Defiance, the story of FC Start, which is a short ESPN documentary on the death match, many Ukrainians were taken prisoner right away and thrown into camps, where some of them soon died of disease and starvation. But about six months into occupation, a lot of these POWs were released and ended up living like refugees on the streets of Kiev. They existed off of food rations that were at times cut to 200 grams of bread per week. And this was said to be about the size of about a matchbox, so Mm -hmm. not very much at all. And so people had to resort to eating things like dogs, rats, crows, bark, and even cow dung. So we're going to be starting our story, basically, with one of these POWs among those who were released and returned to Kiev, according to an article by Johnny K. Lee in Soccer and Society, were a few Ukrainian soccer players who had played for the local team, the Dynamo Kiev, before the Nazi invasion. And Lee points out how soccer was really at its height kind of then. It it gained popularity in the Soviet Union during the 1930s, maybe as a way to escape from the harsh realities of being ruled by a totalitarian government. And Russia had a couple of pretty well-known teams, but the Dynamo Kiev was considered one of the best of these soccer teams in Europe. Yeah, Andy Dugan, the author of Dynamo, Triumph and Tragedy in Nazi-Occupied Kiev, said in that ESPN documentary that we mentioned, quote, the way that Kiev played was revolutionary. They played tremendously attacking football. At the time, all the locals knew who the players were, and they would talk about games for days after they happened. They were celebrities. Indeed. But, of course, Nazi occupation changed all that, and the Dynamo Kiev players who were released as POWs had to struggle like everybody else did. However, one of them, Nikolai Trasevich, who'd been the team's goalkeeper, upon his return to the city, managed to land a job at the Kiev Bakery Number 3. Which, if you're getting rations that are matchbook size, that's a pretty great opportunity. So how he got that opportunity had to do with his soccer playing pass. The Kiev-born manager of the bakery had been a huge Dynamo fan, and he recognized Trusevich and brought him on, hired him, making sure that he had shelter and food. And this manager, whose uh, name some sources list as Josef Kordik, also had German ancestry. So he had a relatively privileged position in the city at this time. He managed to convince the Kiev governor and the Reich Commissar for the Ukraine that there should be an amateur football tournament in the city to raise the morale of the Germans, of course. That was how he presented it. So some organized development of soccer teams was allowed to go on. Besides this, according to Carol Burkhoff's book, Harvest of Despair, Life and Death in the Ukraine Under Nazi Rule, organized sports were pretty much suppressed because the Germans were afraid that sports would encourage Ukrainian solidarity. So this was really almost a coup that he was able to convince them to to stage this and go through with it. Yeah, in a way. The bakery manager encouraged Trasevich to put together a team, and Trasevich managed to track down some of his old teammates and some players from the Lokomotiv Kiev team who were also given jobs at bakery number three. They called their team FC Start, which Lee suggests may have been symbolic of a new beginning. 
So by June of 1942, the soccer tournament that the bakery manager was hoping for was finally organized, and it took place at the Zenit Stadium in Kiev. And Reardon describes it as a Euro-style competition, where FC Start played teams representing the various occupying powers, so Hungary, Romania, Italy, Germany, and nationalist Ukrainians. And from the beginning, it was FC Start that just dominated the tournament. So for example, they beat Hungary 6-2, to they beat the Romanian team 11-0, to and they just continue to steamroll everyone, just go on undefeated throughout the summer. And that may not be too surprising when you think of the team's makeup. So FC Start players were, after all, very skilled professional-level athletes who had been uh, competing at the highest levels in their sport even before the Nazi invasion. Other teams might have been made up more of mostly military players, military folks. You know, they weren't professional soccer players. But at this point, the Ukrainian team was also malnourished. They were tired from working long hours. They didn't have proper equipment. So you shouldn't just think of them as a team of highly conditioned professionals either. FC starts wins, though, especially considering the origins of the teams that they were winning against, started to really boost the morale of locals in Kiev. People would pay high prices, maybe higher than they could necessarily afford, for tickets to come out and see FC start beat these teams that represented occupying forces. According to Lee's article, the Germans realized that this morale boosting was going on. They started to... to to sort of come to know this, that they were dealing with a type of resistance here, that they and their allies were being humiliated, basically, by what they considered to be a team of, quote, you know, subhuman Ukrainians. So they decided that it was time to do something about it. It wasn't boosting their morale. It wasn't boosting their morale at all. So on August 6th, 1942, a game was set up between FC Start and a recently formed German team called Flock Elf. According to an article in the New York Times by Jure Longman and Andrew Lahren, the name Flock Elf suggested that the German team was made up mostly of people who manned anti-aircraft guns around Kiev. Flock Elf had apparently pummeled the Ukrainian nationalist team prior to this match, so they felt that they were easily going to come in and dominate FC Start, too. But Start ended up winning 5-1. to one. That was not a problem for Flock Elf. They just scheduled a rematch for only three days later. And Lee also notes, of course, that the Germans controlled the local newspapers, so no reports about that original Ukrainian victory were getting out. And they were probably hoping that FC Start would be so tired. You know, we already mentioned they were malnourished and um, not in the best physical shape. They would just be so tired from that previous match. And, um, and they, from working and, and so from forth. working, trying to I'm sure survive. they didn't get like a three-day vacation before the rematch. Exactly. They figured they would be really tired from that match during the rematch. And uh, they were also planning on coming out with a possibly reinforced team of their own. So they would be new and improved while their opponents would be worn down and tired. So the rematch, the one that would become known as the Match of Death, took place on August 9th, 1942. And according to that New York Times story we mentioned, there was said to be about 2,000 spectators, and Zenit Stadium was surrounded by SS officers and police dogs, though some say that that actually wasn't the case. Tickets to the game were five rubles apiece, which, according to that ESPN documentary, would have been about half a person's monthly salary at the time. 
One of the START players, Makar Goncharenko, later said that an SS officer came to the FC START dressing room before the match started, told them that he was their referee, and then asked them to follow the rules and to greet their opponents in quote, our fashion before the start of the match, which meant that he wanted them to give the Nazi salute. And they agreed to this in the moment, but when they went out there, instead of shouting, Heil Hitler, they were said to have yelled, Fitz Kult Hurrah, which was a Soviet slogan that means fitness culture hurrah. So according to the account of the game given by Goncharenko in a 1985 oral history, it was a really rough match, and all of the calls went to the Germans. Trusevich, who was the goalkeeper, was said to be kicked in the head and knocked out in the first half. And in 1985, Goncharenko said that this led... FC start to fall behind, understandably, losing its its best player like that. But in 1992, he changed his story, and he said that rather they were inspired by Trusevich's injury, and they were actually winning at halftime. The latter story would tend to jive better with the legend, at least as we related it in the beginning of this podcast, the one in which the SS officer slash referee comes into FC Start's dressing room at halftime and warns them against winning the match. Don't win the match. Right. Uh, the author that we mentioned, Dugan, told the New York Times that he thought that this was possible, that the halftime ultimatum did take place, though in Reardon's article, he says that the referee was actually a Ukrainian nationalist. That's what he his research came up with, and uh, not a member of the Gestapo, as some believe, and that the ultimatum actually never took place. So as you might have guessed by now, pretty much everything about how this <laughs> game went down is up for debate. And while we just said it was a rough match and the Germans played dirty, Reardon, whose research included interviewing sons of two start players, an eyewitness, and the Ukraine Sports Museum curator, says that it was tough but a fair match and that both sides, in fact, played roughly, not well, just the German side. And there's some examples of that, too, aren't there, of, of pretty bold moves, I guess I'd say. There are. In Dugan's book, an eyewitness says that FC start player Alexei Klemenko made a saucy move at the end to pretty much embarrass the Germans further. He dribbled all the way down to the mouth of the Germans' goal, and then instead of scoring, he kicked the ball back upfield, as if to say, I don't need that goal. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So regardless of the details, it's generally accepted that FC start went on to win the match Five to three. So we know there was a match. We know they won to five to three. But then all these other Everything details that we gave you, yeah, we've given you various options on. Still, though, I mean, what you're probably most interested in is the uh, legend of what happened to the players after the match. Were they really taken out and shot? That's the myth that we mentioned. Uh, and it was taken pretty much as gospel for about 50 years, just lined up and shot right after the match. And this is obviously untrue since Gontrenko lived on to tell the tale. He died at age 86 in 1998. But there have been other versions of the story that contrast quite sharply with this. How's the players shaking hands, posing for a photo together and going home? That's what Reardon's eyewitness, who was 16 years old at the time of the match, told him. Interesting, though, there is a photo that supposedly shows players on both teams standing together and smiling after the game. But according to an article in The Guardian by Jonathan Wilson, this photo was probably taken at an entirely different game because the correct mix of people aren't pictured there. And the Germans were reported to be wearing a completely different uniform. So it's something else entirely, another just 
bizarre aspect of this Another this twist. Story, yeah. In Goncharenko's account, he said that the players were all apprehensive afterward, but they just showered and went home. And by some accounts, FC Start players were arrested at the bakery on August 10th, the day after the rematch, and Gestapo agents came hunting for them by name, came in actually with a Dynamo Kiev poster I've read, and uh, matched them up and tried to match them up. But by other accounts, the team played one more match on August 16th, which they won eight to zero. And then they were arrested a couple days later on August 18th. There are also alternate reasons, though, why they were arrested, though. And at least one of these arrests had absolutely nothing to do with soccer. So, again, according to Reardon's article, someone added ground glass to the bread that was coming out of bakery number three and the bread that was specifically intended for German officers. And according to the New York Times story, the players might have also been suspected of having ties to the NKVD, which was the Soviet secret police. And at least one player was said to have been killed for this reason. So it might not have been, they might not have gotten in trouble because they were such fantastic soccer players, but because they had all of these other ties and other suspected activities going on. Right. Lee writes that these 10 players were sent to a labor camp at Siretz. And about six months after the match, three players were shot to death. And those were Trusevich, Klimenko, and Ivan Kuzmenko. And Lee suggests that these players' deaths actually didn't really have much to do with the fact that they won a soccer game, or at least they didn't have everything to do with the fact that they won a soccer game. He believes that their fates were just the same as so many other Soviet people who died during this time. And Goncharenko himself kind of uh, agreed with the statement. He said something sort of similar in a 1992 interview. Um, he said, a desperate fight for survival started, which ended badly for four players. Unfortunately, they did not die because they were great footballers or great dynamo players. They died like many other Soviet people because two totalitarian systems were fighting each other and they were destined to become victims of that grand scale massacre. The death of the dynamo players is not so very different from many other deaths. Dugan, however, told the New York Times that he does believe the start players were killed on purpose because it seems too coincidental that it was three of the best players that were shot first. So according to Lee, though, at least three players, including Goncharenko, did manage to escape and to hide out in Kiev until the city was liberated by the Soviets in November 1943. But it's not like things started looking up for the soccer players from there on either. After Stalin took control of the Soviet territories again, anybody who had had contact with the Nazis during their occupation was arrested and questioned as a suspected collaborator. And because the FC start players had competed in these sports, uh, you know, a, a sports event with the occupiers, competed in games against them. That was considered pretty close contact, pretty close collaboration. Eventually, though, word about the supposed death match started to get out, and articles were published. And uh, at first, Soviet authorities didn't really want to promote it because it wasn't something that had been sponsored by them. But eventually, they really adopted the story. They spun it to their own advantage. So it became something like Soviet propaganda in a way. And this is probably why the more extreme version of the match of death exists today, because it did serve a purpose at the time. Right. According to the New York Times article, this is probably also why Goncharenko's story changed over time, because he was initially afraid of being seen by the Soviet government as a Nazi collaborator. But then in later interviews, those that took place after the fall of the Soviet Union, it was a different story. Maybe he felt like 
like he could finally tell the truth. Who knows? Uh, incidentally, in the 60s, the Soviet government actually gave, uh, I think posthumously, they gave the four who had died medals, and they gave they tried to give the living players medals as well. But I think one of the players actually refused huh? to take a medal because he was like, I don't want to be part of a lie. Wow. But this controversy involving the new movie, The Match, that we mentioned in the intro to this episode is sort of all wrapped up in kind of similar tensions, too. Not exactly the same, but it's a Russian-made film, and some Ukrainians feel that it depicts Ukrainians as Nazi collaborators who would be better off sticking with Russia. So it's still kind of all about the Ukrainians feeling like the Russians want to keep them in their sphere of influence, I guess. Well, and we should mention, too, that after the collapse of the Soviet Union, other accounts of the death match really started to emerge. And that's how some of the alternate versions of details you've heard today came about. You know, that's why this story seems so sketchy in a way. And like you said earlier, all we know, really, there was a soccer match. They won. Mm-hmm. What else happened? Yeah, all this other research started to come out later, but it was difficult in the 90s because, I mean, Goncharenko was the one who lived the longest, I think, and he lived until 1998. And so there's really no one to ask anymore who was part of the game. There may be still eyewitnesses and things like that, but, you know, with the differing stories and Very stuff, we're still... Very few even witnesses left. Though. Exactly. We're still left to wonder what the exact story is. But many agree that even if the match wasn't quite as dramatic as the myth that was perpetuated for so many years, the FC start players were still significant and heroic in a way because they boosted morale and they gave people hope during a really dark time. Reardon calls it, quote, a brief moment of human decency provided by football in the maelstrom of war. That reminds me a little bit about some of those quotes surrounding the first Olympics, too, about Mm -hmm. how sports can be inspiring and show that competition can be something that's peaceful and organized. Yes. Today, there's still a monument at Dynamo Stadium honoring the four start players who died in the months after the death match. So what these men did is still remembered and even celebrated regardless of the exact details. So I think, you know, what you're saying about the Olympics is also a good tie-in and sports in general. I mean, you can be inspired with people with what people do and what they can accomplish in sports, even if it's not necessarily an act of heroism, as you might Well, it also shows just how charismatic sports stars can really Mm -hmm. be and how much they can grip a country's attention, even during a time when there was clearly so many other things to be thinking about and worrying about. They could still have a sports figure that you followed and cared about and paid half of your monthly salary to go see. Yeah, well, I think it all comes back to that idea of hope and Um, you know, how that can be an act of heroism in itself, just providing that for people sometimes, no matter what the medium, I guess. But a very sad story, but also one that's really interesting and one that, you know, we may continue to find out more about over the years as maybe more details emerge. So if you know of any other, I know that there are a lot of other sides and theories and parts to the story that we didn't get a chance to cover today. And if uh, you want to share any of those with us, please feel free to email us. We're at historypodcast at discovery.com. You can also find us on Facebook and on Twitter at Missed in History. And people have been suggesting soccer topics to us for years. So I hope this one was, was interesting for you guys. But I know. Well, I can't believe we haven't done one yet. 
I know. So, I like soccer. You do love soccer so yeah. much. So you don't need to read this article, but maybe I should go <laughs> back to my desk and check it out. We do have an article called How Soccer Works, or I could just, you know, get some tips from Jablina or something. But, um, I'll you bring guys... a ball to the office tomorrow. <laughs> okay. Okay. It's a date. Um, you guys who need to freshen up your, your soccer knowledge a little bit like me, you can go check out that article. It's called How Soccer Works. You can find it by searching on our homepage at www.howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. 